So after about a 10-month hiatus, we are tonight returning back to the Psalms, the songbook of God's people. Uh, I'm sure you all remember the eight sermons that were given last July and August precisely on the Psalms. Um, We were back there last summer, exactly, precisely. But we're going back there again, and um, it's probably no secret to most of you now that I absolutely love the Psalms. I think the Psalms are are just a tremendous treasure for the people of God to shape our life, uh, to nurture faith, to remind us of who God is, and to do all of this in the context not of systematic theology, not even of a kind of of a letter that's just driving um, through a certain kind of argument, but through poetry. Uh, Poetry that was most likely put to music and that was rehearsed again and again and again in the life of the people of God and has continued to be at the center of the worship and the praise of God's people from the time that these psalms were collected and began to be used by the nation Israel. So the psalms teach us things and the psalms are incredibly human. One of the reasons I love them so much is they're, they're not treating us as robots, but they're treating us as humans. They arise out of all particular different kinds of, all, all kinds of different situations. And um, they arise from the depth of human pain and suffering and, and uh, God-forsakenness and, and faith and worship and all kinds of different settings. And so I commend the Psalms to you. I want this to be a congregation that loves the Psalms, that we, we know the Psalms, we begin to, to spend time in the Psalms, and they shape our spirituality. They shape the way that we do the mission that God has called us to do here in the city of Boston, to bear witness to Jesus in this community. So that's your big intro for the Psalms. So, so start reading the Psalms if you're not already and, and get into them. Um, we are, I, I want to give you another quick review, and that was Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. Uh, because these set up the whole book of the Psalter for us as God's people. Psalm 1 simply says, and it's the psalm that has the imagery of the tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, its leaf does not wither, over and against the chaff, those husks of the wheat kernels that when the people throw them up in the air, the wind blows them away from the kernels that fall back to the ground, which is the way of the wicked. And it says, you know, happy are those who, uh, who hear God's instruction. Um, not those who go their own way. And so that's the, the broad context of the Psalms, is the, the way to life, the way to substantial human living is to hear God's voice, to, to heed God's call, to attune yourself to God and to his instruction, as Psalm 1 says. And then Psalm 2, the other uh, introductory psalm, says... You know, amidst all of the other kinds of ways in the world, the opposition to God, the one thing that's true, God reigns. God reigns over everything. And the psalm ends in Psalm 2 with saying, blessed uh, is the man who takes refuge in him. So it commends to the people, the, the, it commends to human beings the, the place of, of taking refuge in the God who reigns and not pursuing opposition, not going our own way, but, but taking refuge and entrusting ourselves to this God who reigns. So happy is the one who hears hears God's voice, who listens to his instruction, and blessed is the one who takes refuge in God. Those are the two things that lead us into the book of the Psalter. Well, we made it through Psalms 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8 last summer. We're picking up now in Psalm 9 tonight, Psalm 9 and Psalm 10. And these two Psalms are actually one Psalm in the Greek translation, the Septuagint, and also one Psalm in the Latin translation, the Vulgate. But they're two Psalms in our English translations, and... um, 
we're going to take them in turn. This week, Psalm 9. Next week, Psalm 10. But they're, they're related by many common themes. In fact, um, in the Hebrew, these psalms form an acrostic poem where each stanza begins with a new letter, a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's not quite perfect, so there's some debate, but, but that's the idea is that there's a structure to these two psalms together. Also, Psalm 10 doesn't have a, a title or a superscription which is very unusual for the first book of Psalms. And so, uh, again, people, are, scholars would say these two Psalms actually do pair together. But Psalm 9 is more of a thanksgiving, and Psalm 10 is more of a lament, two kind, different kinds of Psalms that we have. And so we're going to deal with Psalm 9, this, this thanksgiving, in the midst of uh, an ambiguous circumstance. And that's what I want to say by way of, of, of introduction to this Psalm in particular, and um, just to life generally, is that life can often be very, very ambiguous. On the one hand, we see things, we see great joys, we see great um, successes, we, 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 we feel great things, and on the other hand, we see all kinds of tragedies and suffering and evil and challenges and just apathy and numbness and all kinds of things. Life can be very, very ambiguous. One day we feel confident that God is reigning and ruling on the throne over his people. The next day we wonder where God is. And we're, we're stuck in a sense of absence. The Psalms again and again deal with this kind of amb- ambiguity. And the, the wonderful thing about the Psalms is they, they do not ask us to deny the ambiguity of life, of real life. They don't ask us to, to step out of real life, but they actually embrace it. And in the midst of embracing it, give voice and give us a strategy for how to deal with this kind of ambiguity in our own lives. You know, Paul says, walk by faith, not by sight. This is a great commandment for the church, for the people of God. And it's because of the fact that the world that we live in is oftentimes ambiguous. Because a lot of the time when we look at it, doesn't appear as though God is winning and God is reigning, God is on the throne. So he says, walk by faith and not by sight. And the Psalms show us how to do that. I want to say Psalm 9 is arising out of ambiguity. On the one hand, it's a psalm of great thanksgiving. Verse 4. If you've got your Bible, open up to Psalm 4. If you don't have your Bible, start bringing it, if you don't mind. Uh, just as we look at the Psalms. He says, For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. My enemies have turned back and stumbled. They perished before your presence. There's a sense in which, for the author of the Psalms, of, of this Psalm, that, that God has acted in a decisive way and defeated his enemies. And so there's great joy in that. But then, if you keep going in the Psalm, verse 13, he says, Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death. He's asking for God to be gracious. And then in verse 19, Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. In other words, God has acted in one way decisively, and God still hasn't acted in some other ways. So there's ambiguity here. God has done something, but God still, there's more for him to do. And this psalm is arising out of that basic kind of ambiguity. The question is, in an ambiguous world, where do we rest our hope? How do we anchor our hope? How do we anchor our lives in a world that's sending us mixed messages all the time? How do we get rooted? How do we find a a, a direction, a compass that's leading us and guiding us and directing us? How do we do that? And obviously in the church we know that the answer is to walk by faith. It's to look and to see and to determine what God has revealed to be true and and to be a reality. But sometimes that's not just that easy. And one of the things that the Psalms do is in the midst of that kind of circumstance that we all find ourselves in, they give us the strategy of beginning to express. To express not only what we believe, but also what we're experiencing. 
And so the psalmist begins to express his heart in this text. Now, I would commend that to you just as a, a general strategy. If you're feeling confused, if you're feeling kind of distraught, if life isn't making a whole lot of sense, just to open up before the Lord. The Psalms commend that to us as a, as a way of dealing with life as it comes. To begin to open up, to cry out to God from a place of, 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 of struggle and trouble and from a place of joy um, and maybe victory. To cry out, to begin to cry out. And that's what the psalmist does here. Begins to cry out, to pray, to sing, and to express before the living God. Three characters, three different groups in the psalm of Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 that come out to us very clearly. The one is God, thankfully. God features in the psalm. The second is uh, those who are on God's side or the people who belong to God. And the third is the wicked or those who oppose God. Let me say something about these three categories before we look at something more specific. And we'll be dealing with these three categories over the next two weeks. God those who are on God's side, and then the wicked, those who oppose God. First of all, about God. God is revealed in this psalm as one who is seated on the throne. Two or three weeks ago, we looked at that chapter out of Revelation 5, or 4 and 5, where we see God seated on the throne. And so the psalmist reveals God seated on the throne, giving righteous judgment, verse 4. Verse 6 and 7, or 7 and 8, but the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. At the center of all of reality is this God who sits and reigns and rules on the throne righteously. His royal policy is justice and righteousness. And God is the one to whom all creation must give an account one day. And this forms the center of reality for the psalmist as much as it does for you and for me. And this actually becomes the anchor of our hope, the anchor of our hope, that God is ruling and reigning. Then you have the people who are on that God's side. Now, I want to say something about the people on God's side versus the people not on God's side. Now, the people on God's side aren't the people who are kind of the real stiff, like neat and tidy, always dressed really well and do everything right and say everything right. Um, and, and are kind of the people that you don't really want to hang out with on a Saturday or, sun, or Friday night or anything like that. That's not what defines the people of God. The people on God's side, interestingly enough, are described in this psalm by these words, oppressed, afflicted, needy, poor. Now we know these words to mean one particular category of people, but scholars are, are pretty agreed that in, in this psalm, these words are pointing directly to the people of Israel underneath or in a time of trial, in a time of hardship. So what am I saying? The people of God, the people on God's side, aren't defined by some kind of moral perfection or by having it all together, but they're defined by an acknowledgement of their need, by recognizing that they have a need outside of themselves. Defined by this, these words of oppressed, afflicted, needy, and poor. They know that they have a need. The mirage of self-sufficiency, of being, of being one's own God, has been shattered and destroyed. Think back to, or think up now from Psalms to, to Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's this acknowledgement of our need that defines God's people through and through. 
And we see that here. So that's the people. Now, now, on the other hand, the wicked. We're actually going to deal with the wicked a lot more next week because Psalm 10 begins to expose the heart of the wicked. And there's a lot of great lessons there for us because the reality is, is that all of us have some of these two things going on in us. The wicked are those who usurp their position in creation. Why, so, why is the psalm, look how the psalm ends in Psalm 9. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Let them know they're just created beings, not divine, not self-sufficient, not, not able to, 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 to jump out of the proper boundaries that God has set for his creatures. So the wicked are defined fundamentally by a sense of rebellion and ex, uh, a, a usurping of the, the created order of the order that God has put in place before them. And so these are the three parties that the psalm deals with in Psalm 9 and 10. And here we get to the heart. So what's, what's, what's the real message in Psalm 9? What's the real message in Psalm 9? It's incredibly good news. The center of it is Psalm 9, and, or verses 9 and 10. Listen to these words. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. This God who reigns and rules on the throne of heaven, who judges righteously, is also the same God who is a stronghold for his people, a refuge, a fortress, a strong defense, a stronghold for his people. In times of trouble in particular, I don't know where all of you are walking into this place tonight, but I imagine that some of you are in a very particular time of trouble where uh, maybe something's going on with health or something's going on with your job or something's going on with somebody that you love. We all know trouble at some point. And the psalmist is saying God is a stronghold for us in times. He's obviously a stronghold at all times, but a stronghold in times of trouble. And then he says, and those who know your name, those who know your name, your name meaning your reputation and your character, as a God of steadfast love whose mercy endures forever. Those who know your name will put their trust in you because you, O Lord, listen to this, you, this is the key, you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Now that's something that we have to, we have to push back on a little bit as the people of God. It's easy to kind of nod in approval to those words, yeah, God, you have not forsaken those who seek you. But let's just survey the world for just a second. Think about your own life. Let's, think, let's start with the people of God. Think about the people that God had called to be his own special people, struggling in slavery in Egypt for hundreds of years. What do you mean God has not forsaken you? Think about those same people then being um, defeated by the Assyrians and then the Babylonians and going into exile. Think about them coming back from exile under Cyrus, king of Persia, and finding that they've been given sort of a return to their promised land, but, but still under foreign rule again and again and again, climaxing in the Roman rule. Think about God's own son, Jesus, sent into the world, God in human form, God incarnate, encountering opposition after opposition after opposition, and finally, finding himself on the cross and crying out in the words of the Psalms, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Think about John the Baptist underneath Herod's rule in the first century, having given his life to serve, to be a, a messenger, to prepare the way for Jesus to come, finding himself in John the Baptist's cell and then being beheaded for the simple um, kind of whimsical party wish that Herod gave to this girl who danced before him. Think about James, martyred in Jerusalem. Think about Stephen, stoned to death. Think about Paul, stoned basically to death and then miraculously being able to get up and continue walking, shipwrecked, all of these things. God who has not forsaken those who seek you. Think about these people that are unnamed in Hebrews chapter 11, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Those are the people we'd like to be. Women received back back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. Is this who you want to be? Is this where you want to be? The people of God? of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. It's an ambiguous world, isn't it? It's an ambiguous life that we lead sometimes, isn't it? And some of you are living in the center of that ambiguity right now in your life because of personal trial and hardship, because of things that just don't make sense. So what, is, what do you mean? For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Well, it's interesting that Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That Jesus alone goes to this God-forsaken place. But if you follow Psalm 22 out to its end, that psalm expresses heart of praise, a heart of God's power vindicating his servant, vindicating the one who had been consigned over to death. And what do we see in the resurrection? But we see God reversing that indictment upon his one and only son and vindicating him as one who was in the right. We walk by faith and not by sight. These words of the psalmist in verse 10 are are words of faith. They're words that penetrate into the core of reality and acknowledge that there is a God and He is powerful and He reigns over all the world and He judges justly and His policy is righteousness and justice and He is never going to be unfaithful to His creation and to His people. Come what may in our lives. Come what may in our lives. That God is going to reign and He's going to rule and He is not going to forsake us. And that's the knife edge that we walk in a world of ambiguity, is we walk along this place of determined and focused faith that says God does reign and God will never forsake us. Those who seek Him. And of course we acknowledge that that may not become completely apparent until the day that comes when Jesus returns and claims His own and writes every wrong, and wipes away every tear from every eye, and deals with wickedness in its fullness um, once and for all. But our job today is to stand firm in that faith and to proclaim that God does not forsake. 
and to rest in that and to rejoice in that as his people. You know, there, there are four things that God shows us as we draw this to a close of the people that are on his side, the people that he never forsakes in this psalm. The first is in verse 10, that they put their trust in you. Whatever they experience, whatever we experience in the world, these are the people who put their trust in you. What does that mean? We, we talk about that a lot. What does it mean to put our trust in God? It means to rest in his power, in his provision, and in his presence. It means to stop. It means to release, to relinquish control and power. And I gotta know, I gotta know, I gotta know. It, to relinquish those things and to, res, to, to relinquish them up to him. And this kind of resting and relinquishing is then manifest in obedience and holiness in the people of God. As we say, Lord, your way directs me. Your way is best. Your way guides me. And I relinquish my own way and I begin to follow you and to walk in your way. Those who trust in the Lord hate sin. Hate it. Don't recreationally mess around with it. Don't kind of get up and coddle it and get close to it. But they absolutely, utterly hate it and despise it. And intentionally, by the grace of God and the power of the Spirit, begin to run as far as they can in the opposite direction from it. So those who entrust themselves to the Lord, these are the things that they look like. And they seek Him more and more. Verse 10, you, don't, you haven't forsaken those who seek you. We continue to seek. So we trust in the Lord. The second thing we see of these people who are on God's side is they praise and they worship the Lord. Look at the first two verses of the psalm. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all your wonderful deeds. I'll be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. There's an, an exuberant praise and rejoicing that takes place before the Lord of those who are on His side. even though we know that we weren't worthy to be there. As the psalmist says, he says that we, you lift me up from the gates of death. Every one of us could say those things along with the psalmist, that he has lifted us up from the gates of death. And so we sing his praise and we worship him. The third thing is they tell among the people his deeds, verse 11. Those people who are on God's side, who have entrusted themselves to the Lord, begin to tell among the people to proclaim among the nations. That is our job, Church of the Cross, in the city of Boston, is to tell among the city of Boston the deeds of the Lord, the good deeds of the gracious and steadfast love of God. Deeds that he has done in the past, especially in the death and, and resurrection of his son Jesus, but deeds that he's done for us personally. Think about, I love Mark 5, 19, the, the, the man who was possessed with an unclean spirit. Jesus comes and he heals him. Nobody could contain him. Nobody could, could, could um, squelch the, the strength of this man who was possessed by an unclean spirit. And this is what he says to the man. He says, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. That's the call upon the people of God. Those who are on God's side, trust in him, praise and worship him. And they tell among the people his deeds. They have a story to tell. And it's not just a story that's impersonal. It's a story that's deeply gripped our hearts. Because we know in any and all circumstances that he is, has not forsaken us. And we trust in him. And the last thing of these people who are on God's side do is they appeal to the Lord and they pray to him. They cry out to him. Verse 1, chapter of, of, of Psalm 10. Why, O Lord, do you stand afar off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? 
we plead the promises of God to God Himself. God, You've said You would never forsake Your people. Why do You stand afar off? Why do You do these things? Lord, come, show up, demonstrate Your mercy and Your power. One of the jobs of the people of God who love Him and who worship Him is to cry out before Him and to intercede on our behalf and on the behalf of our friends and our family and our neighbors and the strangers and even our enemies is to cry out before the Lord. These things mark the people who are on the Lord's side, for whom the fact of God reigning and ruling on the throne is a righteous judge, is the anchor of their hope, the bedrock of their life in a world that often sends them mixed messages. And so as we close, where are you tonight as you come into this place? Where are you tonight in the midst of an ambiguous world? Entrusting yourself to the Lord, to the God who will not forsake you, Resting in Him. Worshipping Him. Praising Him. Telling of His deeds among the peoples. Or maybe somewhere else. In that place where where picking up the Psalms would be the best medicine for the soul. where, Where just expressing your heart and crying out to God. Perhaps even just as you come to the table, take some time in prayer before you come. Just to express your heart before the Lord and to cry out to Him that He might show Himself again to you as the God who does not forsake His people. Amen.